joy by your commands you give. Let's hold God to his word by turning to his word. From the book of James, uh, chapter 4, as, as we continue. Uh, now, where we're going to be heading in the, in the last four weeks of this series is that James gives us some really bite-sized lessons, um, some, some very digestible uh, kind of everyday wisdom, right? If wisdom is applied knowledge, lived knowledge, then um, as, as we'll see this morning, uh, he makes a turn as we have those, those words for us. And so uh, today has to do with time, with, with calendar and, and how we understand time and the calendar. And so from James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, and we will read through verse 17. Let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Would any of you say that you live and die by your calendar? Not after I just read that. I like planning quite a bit. I think I'm a pretty, pretty good planner. Um, Cassie, my wife, and I have a shared Google Calendar, and I, I think that probably most of the conflict that we've had over the last few years can, can arise out of a single phrase. Well, did you put it on the calendar? Do any of you look at a filled calendar and, and have this, this sense of pride? It feels good to say I'm busy. It feels stressful, too. It feels very chaotic, but also, it also feels pretty good to say... I'm busy. Um, I've been reflecting this week, basically because of this passage, on, on my relationship with the calendar, my relationship with time. And uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, Easter is just a couple of weeks away, and so I was thinking about the weirdest Easter of my life uh, just a couple of years ago. A video-recorded sermon uh, the day before, as, as we all had Easter in our, in our own homes and one thing that stands out to me in that initial period of lockdown, all the way back in March 2020, was how he went from all of this crazy, busy chaos of life, where even, and I know many of you never stopped going into the office depending on your jobs, but everything else on your calendar went completely away. It's possible to live your life kind of assuming that tomorrow will be the same as today, and a healthy lesson from COVID, if we have ears to hear, is that assumption isn't right. We're still feeling the impact of the pandemic. Um, you, you know, wars have never really gone away. It's just all of a sudden we have this big war in a Western European country, and that does have impact on us, and it impacts our economy in strange ways. We're seeing gas prices, and that's giving us a lot of anxiety for us, and that makes me think that James is speaking to us. If we come into this place with this sense of unease, and with this sense of anxiety, and with this desire for things just to be normal, because maybe that's getting to that idea that we just want tomorrow to be like today. Well, not today, but a former day. 
James is a book all about wisdom in the way of Jesus, and the goal of this kind of wisdom, uh, I think you could really distill down to James 3.18, where he says, it's a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. I think that's just a beautiful phrase to begin with. I think you could spend an entire life chewing on that idea that God is calling us to, to sow that harvest of righteousness as peacemakers. What's the opposite of that harvest of righteousness? It's worldliness. It's what James calls loyalty, friendship with the world. And that produces envy and conflicts, judgment, unrest, anxiousness. And you could say the root of all of that is pride. And so a harvest of righteousness contrasted with a life of pride, which is sown in discord and fear and scarcity. Uh, It's a life lived either closed-fisted or with palms open. I think most of us have a grasp on what pride is. Pride is when we wrongly assess ourselves in such a way where we become self-exalted, self-consumed. We have an inflated sense of self-importance. All of us are proud in different ways. It's universal. Pride is in our Adam DNA. And you know what else is part of our Adam DNA is that we typically can't spot pride inside, but we sure can point it out when we see pride in others. It's like having a beard. One of the the struggles I have as a beard owner is eating. Oftentimes there will be food in my beard and I have no idea about it. I try to play it off real cool, but everyone looks at me and says, that guy has food in his beard. I think that's similar to pride. Everybody can see it except for the one who's wearing it. At the heart of our pride problem is our refusal to submit to God. We fail to see ourselves as we really are. Uh, we're limited, we're, we're finite, we're sinful, we're creatures before our creator. And so that's why James says you have to, God opposes the proud and he calls us to humble ourselves and that's where we'll be exalted. Pride is at the root of this friendship with the world and that leads to bad fruits. And at least one of the, these bad fruits of pride, and this is what we're going to look at this morning, is this idea of presumption. Now, presumption is when we misassess something and it leads to us going beyond our limits. It's it's when we assume something that isn't certain. And so you meet someone and just on that interaction, you presume a lot about them. I experience this a lot as a pastor when I meet people, right? What's their response to the fact that I'm a pastor? I get very nervous about this sitting in the barber's chair because I don't know their, their relationship with, with the church, and they have a very sharp instrument, right? And so they find out very quickly that I'm a pastor. I have a sweet barber now. She gives me a discount. She calls me a first responder of the soul. But she's also, but she's also presuming, isn't she? Because there are some bad pastors. So she's presuming as well. Well, that's what presumption is, right? We misassess something. We go beyond our limits, Presumption is also a form of pride where we act outside of our limits. I think any time we say to someone, who do you think you are? We're, we're judging that person to have presumption. And like pride in general, it's easy to see in other people, but it's hard to see in ourselves. So two points this morning as we work through James chapter 4, these, these few verses in 13 to 17. We're going to look at the pride of presumption, and then we're going to look at the humility of surrender. All right, so first of all, the pride of presumption. Look at verse 13. I mean, James puts his finger on this idea of misassessing our limits, right? He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. In order to make his point, James paints this picture of a guy. He represents really all of us who have this same sort of attitude of presumption. So this is a businessman, and he's about ready to make some deals, 
And James says in a very forceful way, come now. Now, this doesn't necessarily come across very strong in the English language, but it's, it's, very, it's, it's something similar to like a prophetic admonishment. It's almost more similar to a woe, woe are you, come now. This is serious business. James is speaking strongly here. And the reason that this businessman who is standing in for all of us, why does he have this overconfident attitude? This attitude where I control my life, I control my future, it's my time, I control it. It's my activity. I'll determine what I do and I'll determine my outcome. And beyond that, I have the right to do with my life whatever I want. It's my life, my time, my career, my money, my identity, my future. That's the presumption that James is putting his finger on. Does that sound familiar? I mean, most of us in America live like this, right? Aren't we taught to live like this? This is the air we breathe. This is the culture in which we live. This is the normal way. We are taught to live this way. We need to be planning our lives, especially when we're young, right? What are you going to do with your life? You need to study to get into this school in order to do this career, in order to have this kind of family life, or if you already have the family life, you need to prepare for kids. What's the first question you have when you're holding your newborn first child? How many more are you planning for? We live with this environment of presumption. Most of us use a calendar. We have, we have months and months of activities planned out. We know what our life is going to look like, or we think we do, next week, next month, six months, a year. We typically plan our lives as if we're in control and as if all of our time belongs to us. This is the spirit of the age. This is the self-help section in bookstores. This is a life coach. This is the message of a lot of preachers, a lot of professing Christians who kind of double as voices of of self-help. You just need to take your life by the reins and God will make everything happen for you. It's William Ernest Henley's poem, how it concludes, his poem Invictus, where it memorably closes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the wisdom of the world. That's the wisdom of America. And what does James say? Come now. Come now. You who say. We don't own our lives, and that's, that's presumption that we think we do. We don't control our future. We belong to God. And it is presumptuous to think that we are in control and that we get to do whatever we want with our lives. And so we need to reassess the wisdom of the world. Maybe it's not so wise. We need to reassess the message that we are the captains of our own ship. And that's what we see in verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James confronts this pride of presumption, and he does it in a couple of ways. We lack two things. We lack two things. We lack knowledge and we lack control. So first of all, we lack knowledge. We, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. It's that simple. We can't plan our lives out and then make it happen. It's just not possible. You can guess. You can bring out all of the data, but you cannot know what tomorrow will bring. Not even the most diligent, intelligent, hardworking, most powerful people in the world can guarantee their future in any way. Go back to fall 2019, right? You could gather the world's most prestigious think tank, composed of all of the leading global foreign policy experts, economists, throw in some epidemiologists. They all could maybe come up with an idea of a possible pandemic, but nobody could see that this is what society would look like across the globe more than two years ago. 
We can't predict the future on a global scale, but we we can't predict the future on a personal scale. One phone call and our lives could be completely upended. Right? One phone call, a diagnosis, an accident. Maybe our company that, that seems very stable, all of a sudden there's a merger or acquisition. And so confidence about our future, James is saying, no, that's not wise. Uh, That's folly. You can't know. James sounds like Proverbs, Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day may bring forth. The second thing we lack is we lack knowledge. We also lack control. Our lives are fragile. They're like mist. They're here one minute and they're gone the next. Uh, James, he, at this point, sounds like Ecclesiastes, where the, the preacher says life is vanity, and that it's the Hebrew word hevel, which is, is better translated as vapor, mist, a puff of smoke that rises and then dissipates. That's our life. And so at the center of this biblical wisdom, and James is adding his voice to that wisdom tradition in our Bibles, we have to reckon with this realistic understanding of the brevity and the uncertainty of our lives. Our sense of control and our self-importance is misguided. We have to reassess how we see ourselves and the life that God has given us. I think too often, and we're going to talk about wise planning in just a little bit, but too often when we talk about this this idea of of responsible planning, are we sure we're not drifting maybe into these euphemisms of control? And it's about control. Our hunger to control leads to problems, though, doesn't it? What happens when the things I think I'm controlling don't go according to plan? Uh, I turn resentful. I turn bitter. I'm filled with anxiety. I'm filled with worry. And instead of having a presence that loves and serves, you could argue that's the goal here. Those are the kinds of people that God is, is creating and calling us to be. But instead of being the kind of presence that can be for others, instead now I'm someone to avoid. Sin of presumption. There's another problem of control, though, because I think we can all testify, you know, some things, oftentimes many things, do go according to plan. And then what happens? Well, it becomes a source of righteousness. And so we can boast in our preparedness. Good things are happening in my life because I planned for it, and I made it happen. And and then conversely, bad things are happening in your life because you aren't as responsible as me. And wherever we find a path of righteousness, that's where we find boasting. The Apostle Paul never told us to stop boasting. He said, make sure your boasting's in, in the true source of righteousness. Make sure your boast is in Christ. And James says this sort of presumption, right? It's not just ill-advised. It's, it, it isn't just less than ideal. In verse 16, it's evil. I'd like to think this is just something that's a minor character flaw, right? There, there are worse things in my life. It's not as bad as other sins, but listen to James. You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Our pride and presumption, it's evil. Our boasting is evil. Our false sense of control isn't a minor flaw. It's deadly. Because it all ignores the most foundational reality, which is you, all of you, your life does not belong to you. It belongs to God. From your first breath to your last breath and everything in between, it's governed by the God who made you. And if you look to Christ for your salvation, not only the God who made you, the God who saves you and keeps you. 
And so to live in a way where you are governed by a false sense of control and presumption is sin, and it will have devastating consequences in how you relate to God and how you relate to others. When we live this way, we're grasping for God's place. He's the one who rules over all things, and so we end up acting like, no, we're the ones who are in control. We should get the credit. We can control our future, and what does that do? At the end of the day, it extinguishes gratitude. It extinguishes living thankfully before the face of God. It also leads to us sinning against other people. The anger that comes when your plans are disrupted, how you neglect the love of others because you live for yourself. When things aren't going our way, how we grumble and complain. Thankfulness is replaced with bitterness, anger. And so what do we do about this sin of presumption? What's the better way? What's the way of wisdom? And it's our second point. It's the humility of surrender. It's to live with open hands, eager to receive. Verse 15, the opposite of presumption and control is to surrender to God. Uh, Instead, you ought to say, James writes, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. We are to live with this posture of if the Lord wills. Now, this is not just a throwaway line. I don't know if you've ever met people like this, where maybe they they say everything, and, and after every kind of intention, it's like, if the Lord wills, Lord willing. I think often we can say that it can be right. Oftentimes, it just sounds kind of overly pious. Oftentimes, I think what's happening is that we're making our plans and then baptizing them with if the Lord wills. But I think James is getting to something deeper. He's demonstrating a posture where we are acknowledging and recognizing and living out of the reality that God is in control of our lives. It's, it's humbly surrendering to him. It's a posture of realizing, I don't have any control. James's point is simply put, God rules over everything. All of creation, all that takes place is in God's sovereign hands. And it's heavy to think through the implications of this. But in the end, it means we're not in control and God is carrying out his purposes in our world and in our lives and therefore our lives belong to him and so we need to surrender to that which God is bringing and doing and working out. Now here is the key to this passage, if you're looking for the key. And I don't want to miss this. This is so important. It's notice in the phrase that he gives us is the right response. It says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Do you remember what the businessman said? The businessman said, we're going to go to this and this town. We're going to do some commerce. And I'm going to do what? I'm going to make a profit. We need to have this posture that says, we don't know what will come when we make plans. See that difference there? The businessman says, I'm going to make a profit. The other one says, like, we're just going to do these things. We're still making those plans. But these plans are in God's hands. The businessman, you and I, we're, we're confident about personal gain. But to live surrendered is, is not to be overconfident with what will happen with the plans that we make. Humility means an openness and a certain degree of uncertainty. And, of, of course, there is no certainty about our futures. Now, it's crucial again at this point. We want to address, so what does it mean to to prepare? What does it mean to make plans? That's the question we all have. I don't think James is saying we shouldn't make commitments about things that will take place in the future. He's not condemning planning. He's not 
condemning commitments. He's not condemning hard work. Um, the, the, the Bible is filled, especially in the wisdom literature, with the idea of, of planning and preparing. I think of, of Proverbs 6, you, he calls out the lazy slugger to go study the ants. Well, what are ants doing? They're preparing. They're working hard. No, no wisdom is not not planning. That, that's a different kind of folly not to plan. And so the question that we want to ask, the question that we want to get to the heart of is how do we plan wisely? And we plan with an open hand. When we make plans and they are disrupted, and they're often disrupted, um, why am I getting angry? Why am I so anxious? Why am I so resentful? Because the goal is to strive for joy and hope and trust and peace. It means maybe I'm planning with a closed fist. And when our plans succeed, we don't get all puffed up and arrogant and self-assured and judgmental. We realize that so many of the factors that allowed our plans to succeed were out of our hands to begin with. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 4. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast? And so we're humble, we're grateful, we're generous to others. On the other hand, when we face hardship and suffering and loss, we don't get lost in despair. We, we don't become bitter because we look and trust in God to see what he is doing in these hard circumstances, confident that he is doing something. We plan and then strive, regardless of the outcome, for contentment, knowing that in feast or famine, in, in the valley of the shadow of death, or by lush green pastures, the good shepherd is with us. Now, how in the world can we live like that? How can we live like that? Maybe you're saying, I get I'm supposed to surrender. But how do I embrace whatever God brings my way? How do we say in our life, if the Lord wills? You can only do that if you trust that God and his purposes for you are good. The only way you can live your life saying, and also meaning, truly, if the Lord wills, is to trust that God's purposes for you are good. And I would argue here, you won't ever see that clearly enough by looking at your appointment book, or by looking at your bank statement, or even by looking at your family album. That you will see it clearly at the cross. We don't know everything. Uh, we don't know everything we, 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 we need to, to get through in this life, but we can know God is good as we go through what he brings in our lives. Even in the face of heartache and disappointment and suffering, we can keep the cross, an empty tomb, before our eyes. As we strive to live our lives in surrender to the heart of God, we can behold the life of Jesus who lived a life of surrender for us. Jesus lived with an open hand before the Father. So I was thinking about this passage this week. It, it, it kind of struck me how many times in Jesus' own ministry his plans are interrupted. And it's almost like if you want to see the heart of Jesus and who he is for sinners, you got to go to when he's interrupted. So you can think when, when the uh, Jairus' daughter is dying, right? And so they come for this, for this civic leader and, and they say, come and, and heal my daughter. And Jesus is on the way and all of a sudden he's amidst the crowds and the woman with the bleeding issue comes up to him and touches him, right? And what happens? Everything stops. And Jesus turns to look at her and he says, now who touched me? Well, then he looked at her because he asked the question. Who touched me? 
The lepers crying on the side of the road. Again, Jesus is on his way to a destination, and the lepers cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Uh, the little children who come and take Jesus' attention. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is, is, is after Jesus has been ministering. This is in Matthew's gospel. He's been ministering day after day. He's just learned that his friend John the Baptist has been beheaded. And, and Jesus wants to do what all of us would want to do at that minute, which is sleep. We'd all just want to sleep, wouldn't we? And yet Jesus looks across the lake and he sees all the people. And he says it moved him because he saw they were like sheep without a shepherd. And his compassion interrupted him. If you want to see the heart of Jesus, look at how he's interrupted. Jesus did not live his life for personal gain, but to obey the Father's will and to serve the lost. And, and where is this better demonstrated than in the Garden of Gethsemane? When, of course, Jesus cried out, not my will, but yours be done. He surrenders his own life, sacrificing for others, not for personal profit. Because Christ surrendered his life to the Father's will, he bore the penalty for our pride so that all who humble themselves receive him. Receive him. And this is why right now we can live open-handed in Christ. Because we are not our own but belong to him. I think one of the greatest paragraphs ever written was Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one. What is your only comfort in this life that is uncertain, in this life that has anxieties, in this life that can at times be extremely terrifying and, and fearful and scary? And what is your only comfort in death, which is this sure, sure valley of fear to walk through? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He's fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He set me free from the tyranny of the devil. And he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. All things, can you believe it? Can I believe it? All things. All things, can you believe it when you're sitting in your life story and you're saying there is not a known universe where I ever would have written the chapter that I'm in right now? But God's written it. Can I trust that he knows better? Can I trust that he's for me and that he's good? The person wise in the way of Jesus lives surrendering more and more to God because he's the one who surrendered for us so that we might live. So friends, may God by his grace, would, would he make us the kind of people who can rest in this good news, who can believe this good news, who can hold our plans loosely as we tighten our grip on the heart of God and who he is for us. Let's pray. Lord, I, I confess, this, this seems like a pretty easy message to intellectually grasp, theoretically understand. 
when we get down to, to the bottom of it, we are daily confronted with our finitude. We are daily confronted with just how limited and feeble we are. We can look back over so many plans that never came to fruition. So many left turns in our life that we never would have planned, and, and yet here, here we are. And so we can, we can acknowledge the truth of this passage, and yet we also have to grapple with the, the anxiousness and the restlessness and the resentment and the bitterness that too often we still live as if we do have that control. As if we can have this kind of purpose for our lives that we can create, that we can achieve. And so, Lord, would you use this word that you have given us to, to hack off our, our pride? That we would be able to see um, the, the humility um, that is, is something to be aspired to, and yet also the humility that is so fitting for our condition. Because what, what do we have that we haven't received? Lord, we thank you for the gospel where we do see in, in technicolor, where we do see so vividly your good purposes for our life through the work of Jesus, your son. Lord, would that be so clear for us? Holy Spirit, would you seal that reality to us as we leave this place um, into a world with, with, with our calendar and our commitments and our planning? Lord, would we find so much solace and comfort in knowing that we are in your hands? And they are nail-scarred, and they are good. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.